we are going to be uh, uh, digging into something very uh, amazing today. And so uh, today, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 12. We are in the sermon series called The Final Steps, and this is tracing Jesus' life chronologically. We are now in the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, so we have been going through each step. Now we're at, chronologically speaking, Thursday evening. And uh, so today, normally this kind of a presentation, this kind of a message, Christ in the Passover is the title of the message today. Normally this would be done in the spring, but we ain't in the spring, we're in the fall, and this is where we come chronologically to the story. So we're going to cover it today, Um, Christ in the Passover. So that when Passover rolls around, you'll definitely have a new appreciation for it. Now, let me start off by saying this. It's really easy to read the Bible, and especially the Gospels, as if the events, as if the teachings of Jesus were completely random. They were spur of the moment. They were unprepared, and they were completely uncoordinated. It's easy for us to read the Bible in that vein. However... That's exactly the opposite from what we found by going through the life of Christ over the last two years. What we've seen is Jesus deliberately saying things that activated a person's faith. We've seen him ask specific questions to see where a person's heart was. We've seen him take the disciples on a long trip to Caesarea Philippi where this uh, place called the Gate of Hell exists so that he could work in that statement to the conversation and make it a moment that they would never forget. We've also seen him fulfill prophecy after prophecy through his life. So nothing in Jesus' life was accidental. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Not one thing Jesus said, not one thing Jesus did, not one place Jesus ever went was accidental. He was exactly where the Father wanted him to be, doing exactly what the Father wanted him to do, and saying exactly what the Father wanted him to say. He was the perfect model for our life and behavior. And as we have been going through the life of Christ chronologically, we've now arrived at one of the most intimate moments of uh, Jesus with his disciples. And it is a moment in time that can bring some confusion to Christians because we typically do not observe the Passover. The only part of the Passover that most Christians know anything about is uh, the communion part of it. But there is so much more to it than that. And to understand it better, we go back to Exodus chapter 12. And so we will look there in just a moment. In Genesis 15, 13, it it says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, who later became Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, travelers, in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God told Abraham that Israel, the people of Israel, were going to go into a foreign land and travelers, and and become slaves and servants in this land for 400 years. Now, we fast forward to Exodus chapter 12, and the 400 years is up. 
God raised up Moses to lead Israel out of their slavery from Egypt. But Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, refused to let God's people go. Time and again, he would agree to let him go, and then he would go back on his word. So God sent plagues against Egypt to punish them for refusing to allow, Egypt, uh, to allow Israel to leave. Each of these plagues was not just an attack on the Egyptians, but it was also showing dominance over the Egyptian gods. And after nine judgments, Pharaoh still refused. God told Israel that the worst was coming, the plague against the firstborn. All firstborn humans and firstborn of cattle would die if they were not covered in the blood of a sacrificial lamb. After that plague, the Egyptians would demand that Israel leave, so they had to be ready. This was not a leisurely meal eaten while relaxing, not originally. The, the, originally, the meal was to be eaten in haste. So let's read the passage that contains God's directions about the meal. It's Exodus, excuse me, Exodus 12, 5 through 8, then we'll skip down to 11 through 15. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall kill it. I'm sorry, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel, which is the upper doorpost of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is flat bread without yeast. And bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Basically, be ready to run. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven, yeast, out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That's the historical context of Passover. The very first celebration of Passover happened on the night of the 10th plague. However, God commanded that Passover be celebrated every year as a memorial to what he accomplished to liberate his people from slavery. Over the years, additional symbols have been added to the Passover Seder. And the word Seder just means order. Additional symbols have been added to help God's people remember specific things about life in Egypt and about God's salvation. 
Because of that, most of the elements of the modern Passover meal were already incorporated into Passover when Jesus celebrated it with his disciples. Now, there's a lot of preparation that goes into the Passover. You don't just whip up some mashed potatoes and push all the kids' toys in the closet. You completely clean your house from top to bottom so that you can make all of the necessary preparations for this meal. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, verses 18 through 19, he said, go into the city, which is Jerusalem, and uh, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So the chief piece of preparation, and if you want to follow along in your bulletin, we have a little outline of, of what I'm going through this morning. Uh, there's no blanks to fill in because it's going to go pretty quickly, but um, you can kind of follow along. So the chief piece of preparation for Passover is what God commanded Israel to do. Clean out all of the, all, all of the yeast, all of the leaven from your house. And so this means... No sandwich bread. You, can't, you cannot keep these things in your house. You can't keep yeast in your house, and you can't keep anything made with yeast in your house. So your sandwich bread has to be thrown out. Your hot dog buns, your Twinkies, your cake and brownie mixes, it's all got to go to the trash. You have to prepare ahead of time for this. <clears throat> you couldn't eat them, and you couldn't keep them in your house for Passover week. And I, I've never tried it, but I would greatly assume that a Twinkie made without leaven doesn't taste the same. It's like the one thing they said would never decompose, a Twinkie. And it does. It's sponge cake, but it's, you wouldn't want to eat it, okay? So matzah bread is the bread that is made without yeast. And it's, uh, one of the names for matzah bread is the bread of affliction. And you're going to get to eat a little bit of that today when we take communion. And you'll know what I mean. It ain't a saltine, okay? It's, it's not as good as a saltine. It's, you'll, you'll understand what leaven does for bread when you, try, when you do the uh, matzah at the end. Um, in the Orthodox Jewish home, the mother would clean the house from top to bottom. Top to bottom, mom is cleaning, getting ready. Then the man of the house comes to inspect to ensure all the leaven is cleaned out. And they take part in this ceremony called Berikat Chametz. Berikat Chametz, which means the search for leaven. So the night before Passover, the mother of the house will have the house completely clean and ready for Passover. But she'll leave just a little bit of leaven hidden somewhere in the house. And the father will come home that evening, he'll take a candle, he'll take a feather, he'll take a wooden spoon and a cloth napkin, and he will search the whole house for the leaven that mom has left behind until he's found it. Whether it's half of that Twinkie, um, you know, some crumbs from his toast that he left behind at breakfast, whatever, she'll leave it behind. When he finds the crumbs, he'll take the feather and he'll sweep the crumbs onto the wooden spoon and then he'll gently 
uh, take the he'll take the crumbs and he'll put them in the napkin. He'll wrap it up and he will take the napkin to the synagogue where they have a bonfire raging. And uh, then he'll throw the napkin with the leaven into the bonfire where it is burned up and he can declare his home officially, ceremonially clean for the Passover. Now, in reference to Passover and this, this a specific part of it, Betty Karchametz, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. To the church in Corinth, he wrote, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul makes a reference to Passover and unleavened bread, leavened bread. And in the Bible, leaven isn't just sandwich bread and bagels. It's not just, you know, something as unimportant as that. It actually has a spiritual connotation. Leaven, yeast, represents the presence of sin and uncleanness in a person's life. Because leaven represents sin, the candle that the Father uses represents the light of God's Word to reveal the presence of uncleanness, to reveal where the leaven is. The feather represents the gentle uh, help of the Holy Spirit that... Uh, helps us remove sin from our lives. The wooden spoon represents the wooden cross that bears the weight of the sin. The cloth napkin represents Christ's burial clothes. And the fire represents the final state of sin and death, which is the lake of fire. So leavened bread represented sin. Unleavened bread, matzah, represents purity and holiness. And you can see these little elements in this ceremony can have spiritual understanding. Now, I understand that, that this ceremony uh, seems pretty patriarchal. You know, oh, the woman has to clean the house, and the man gets to inspect. I see how things go. But every Sabbath and every festival, candles are lit in the home, and a blessing is given over the home by the woman of the home, the wife, the mother. She lights the candles every Sabbath and every uh, festival. The woman lights the candles that ushers in light into the home and ushers in the, the special time that the family will celebrate. And so she prays a prayer in Hebrew, and then she says it in her native language for the young ones. And the prayer is, uh, for, on Passover, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Every Jewish prayer starts that way, by the way. You're going to hear that a bunch. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who commands us to light the lights of Passover. Now, it's significant that the woman is the one who has this honor and this responsibility because I see the spiritual connection to a very young, innocent woman 2,000 years ago who had the honor and the responsibility to bring the light 
of the world into the world as Mary, the mother of Jesus, did. During the Seder, the family involves the children in the event. You know, otherwise they get bored, as some of you are. If you need a pillow, blanket. Um, but you get involved in the Seder so that you can stay awake and involved. And, and so they, the kids ask the four questions, which allow the father to lead the family through an understanding of why Passover is distinct and different. And so the first question that gets asked is, why is this night different from all other nights? On other nights, we can eat leavened bread, but tonight we can only eat unleavened bread. On other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs, but tonight we only eat bitter herbs. On other nights, we don't dip our herbs at all, but tonight we dip our herbs twice. On other nights, we eat in an ordinary way, but tonight we eat in a celebration. And so the father answers this question, as well as the other three questions, which help explain how Passover is unique. Then he leads his time into a uh, he leads his family into a time of worship and celebration. And so there are also four cups in Passover, but it's really one cup, and you drink from it four times. Each cup represents something specific in the Passover Seder. The first cup is called the Kiddush which is Hebrew for sanctification. When you partake of this cup, when the father or the leader of the Seder partakes of this cup, he is sanctifying or setting apart all that follows in the Seder. Jesus almost assuredly prayed this special prayer over the cup, and then he added something else, which I'll tell you in a second. Um, the prayer in English is, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You're going to have that part memorized. Who brings, fruit from, uh, who brings forth fruit from the vine. That's the prayer that's prayed over the cup. But the part that Jesus added is found in Luke 22, 15 and 18, when he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 18 for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so Jesus was prophesying a new or fulfilled Passover that would be ushered into his kingdom through his own suffering. With this cup, he sanctified all that was to follow in the Passover with his disciples. Now, as I said before, this, the word Seder means order. Uh, or agenda, um, and it has a special order to the ceremony. It has special plates and a special dish that provides a place for each of the six elements of the Passover ceremony. The first is carpus, which is parsley. Um, if you're Jewish and Mexican, you can substitute cilantro and have a little bit of flavor to it because parsley has no flavor whatsoever. <clears throat> it just tastes like grass. But carpus means greens, and it represents life. And so it's a sprig of parsley, and you dip it in salt water, as if it wasn't bad enough. You dip it in salt water, which represents the tears of life. And during Israel's time of slavery in Egypt, they cried out to God for salvation and for freedom. 
Karpas is a reminder of that. The parsley is a reminder of that. But it's also a reminder that God brought them out of that desperate situation and gave them a new life in the promised land that was green and abundantly fruitful. So the participants eat the sprig of parsley after they've dipped it in salt water. The next item, because it's just going to get better from here on out, is horseradish. In Hebrew, it's maror, which means uh, bitter herb. And that's what we read about in Exodus chapter 12. They take a piece of matzah and they dip it in the horseradish. And they take a big old bite. And the physical reaction of eating a big glob of horseradish is tears. You can't help but to cry at this point. The the tears they shed at the meal become a physical reminder of the misery and the tears shed by Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. This is the second dipping of the meal. And this is significant because it is at this moment when the father or the leader, the eldest male who is leading the Seder, when he dips his matzah in the bitter herbs, the eldest son or the eldest man in the room will dip his matzah at the same time. Matthew 26, 21 through 23. And as they were eating, he, Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And because it was such a routine practice for the eldest male and the leader to dip at the same time, nobody recognized that it was Judas who did it. And even Judas didn't even recognize it at the moment because in one of the gospel accounts, he said, um, is it I? And Jesus says, go and do what you prepared to do. And so uh, that also tells us, just as an aside, Judas was the eldest disciple because he dips at the same time as the leader dips, and that was just common practice. So Judas was the eldest disciple. But at this point, Judas leaves the upper room. He confers with the Pharisees in order to betray Jesus later that, on, later that evening. And so betrayal is bitter and is now associated with the bitter herbs. Next is something called haroset, which is a mixture of apples and raisins and nuts. And it represents the mortar that was used when Israel had to build the structures as slaves in Egypt. And so this is also used to remind them of the sweetness of God's promise of redemption. So they take the matzah, they put a little bit of the uh, haroset, this mixture, on top. They make a little open-faced sandwich out of it, and they eat it. And once you have the sweet mixture in your mouth, you forget all about the bitterness from before. And isn't that just like God's work in our lives? That when we are saved and redeemed and free in Jesus, all of the bitterness and all of the pain of our life before is nothing in comparison to what we have now in Jesus. 
we would never want to go back to that former way of living because of the sweet salvation that we now have. Even the most bitter experiences can be sweetened by God's promise of protection and deliverance and salvation. Next on the plate is chazaret, which means bitter root. It is the root vegetable from which the horseradish is made. Thankfully, nobody takes a bite out of that. It's just there as symbolic. It is used to symbolize that the root of life can often be bitter. As Israel experienced 400 years of slavery in Egypt. However, we cannot let a root of bitterness overtake us and turn our hearts away from God or God's people. The next thing on the list is the egg or the chagiga. It is a hard-boiled brown egg. And chagiga was also the name used for the sacrifice at the temple during Passover. And the egg is used to represent that sacrifice. They peel the egg, they slice it, and before it's eaten, it is dipped in salt water, which represents, which represents tears. And it is, a remor- uh, it is a memorial to a sacrifice that no longer exists. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb was central to worship, and it, required, and it, was, it was required in God's laws, but it ended the day the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. When celebrating the Passover, Jews mourned the loss of the sacrificial system, which enabled them to have their sins forgiven. Because the sacrifices have stopped, the rabbis no longer permit eating of lamb at the Passover festival. Because that would mean that a Passover lamb, a lamb was killed away from the commanded place, which is the tabernacle or the temple. So instead, they typically eat brisket in Passover. So Jews across the world become honorary Texans on Passover because they enjoy a good brisket, and we know how to do brisket in Texas. The last item on the plate is the zaroa, which is the shank bone of a lamb. Since they can't kill a lamb and eat the lamb, they take a shank bone and they leave it there on the plate to remember them of the lambs that took center stage on the first Passover that brought about salvation and deliverance. I was actually reading this story again this morning in preparation for our service, and I I was just immediately struck by the concept. You have to realize the forethought and the provision of God, that he caused the sheep and the goats to be so fruitful to bear all of these male lambs one year before God would orchestrate this event so that there would be enough one-year-old lambs of sheep and goats to facilitate this sacrifice one Lamb for a household. And there were a whole lot of households. And yet, God knew that. And a year before, he enabled all these sheep and goats to be incredibly fruitful so there could be provision at this moment in time. So as we read in Exodus 12, God commanded Israel to take a young lamb without spot or blemish, without breaking any of its bones, and kill it so that its blood could be drained 
out and it could die for those inside the home. Of course, we know there was another lamb that was offered on Passover who died not just for a home, not just for a nation, but a lamb who was slain for the whole world. And his blood would be poured out for the salvation of all who would apply his blood to the doorposts of our hearts. And that despite Roman tradition, none of his bones would be broken in keeping with the prophecy from Psalm 3420. Now we come to the second cup. It's called the cup of plagues. And they don't drink from the cup. Instead, they dip their finger and they put a drop of the juice on or wine on their plate in front of them. One drop for every plague God visited upon Egypt. Blood, hail, locusts, frogs, lice, flies, pestilence, boils, darkness, slaying of the firstborn. Nine plagues were terrible, but each time Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let Israel go. And when God told Moses about the 10th plague, he told him what to do in order to be spared from the destruction that was coming. He told them to take the blood of the Passover lamb, dip a branch in the blood and apply it to the sides of the house, the doorpost, and the top of the doorpost of their home. And God told them that when the angel of the Lord saw the blood covering them, he would pass over them, and destruction would not come to their home. Hence the name of the festival, Passover. This blood dripping down from the top of the doorposts and across the sides would have made the sign of the cross on every single Jewish home in Egypt. When we accept Jesus as our Messiah, we are applying the blood of the greatest Passover lamb of all time to the doorpost of our hearts. When God looks at us, he doesn't see the filthiness of our sins. He sees the blood. And when he sees the blood, he sees a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. When he sees the blood, he sees Christ in us. The spirit of righteousness is also at work in us. When he sees the blood, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the final elements of the Passover is called the matzah tosh. Matzah is unleavened bread. Tosh is bag. And so inside the bag, there are three pieces of matzah bread. Each piece is in its own compartment inside the bag. And so rabbis taught that the matzah tosh represented unity. It's one bag with three separate compartments holding bread in each. And so rabbis would teach a unity of three in one. Now, some rabbis would teach that that unity of three in one represented the patriarchs. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some rabbis taught that it represented the unity of worship, the priest, the Levites, and the people of Israel. There are lots of explanations to try to explain something that we as Christians already understand, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. During a specific time of the Passover, the Father reaches into the matzotosh and he pulls out the middle piece, the second piece of bread. And one of the names of this matzah, as I said before, is the bread of affliction. When you examine this piece of matzah, you see a few things about it. First, this is a whole loaf of bread. All right, remember that when you open your sandwich bread. Later on this week, you're making yourself a turkey sandwich. This is a whole loaf just without the yeast. <clears throat> so it's because it has no yeast, it's obviously completely flat like a cracker. Um, there's no leaven in it, which is an analogy to sin. It's pure and untainted. To ensure there are no leaven or impurities in the bread, they roll it out and then they pierce it to ensure there is nothing unclean in it. And then they put it on a rack in a high temperature oven, which causes stripes to appear on its back. All matzah is unleavened, pierced, and striped. Of the Messiah, Malachi 2.6, Malachi wrote, True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He was completely clean, untainted, and blameless. David wrote in Psalm 22.16, For dogs, which is a euphemism of Gentiles, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, King David was never crucified, but he was looking through the prophetic lens of the Holy Spirit to a day when the Messiah would be pierced. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds or stripes, we are healed. The Messiah was sinless, pierced. And striped. Now, remember the Zoroah, the shank bone from earlier? Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm, or the word Zoroah, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then Isaiah prophesied about how Jesus would die, how the Messiah would, would uh, how he would grow up, how he would look how he would behave, and how he would die. And this Passover's, Passover lamb's shank bone is a picture of God's arm of salvation in the final Passover lamb's death. So this middle piece of bread is wrapped up in a cloth. It's taken out of the matzotash. It is broken in half. Pretty close. And it is uh, wrapped in a linen cloth and is called the afikomen, which is the hidden matzah. Afikomen 
means it comes later, it returns, or it comes again. The father takes this special bread outside of the room where the celebration is taking place, and he hides it or buries it for a time. This is such an important part that the entire meal is considered incomplete without the second piece. There is no unity without the second piece of matzah. Towards the end of the meal, the father or the head of the household will tell the children to go search the house for the afikoman. And they run around the house, searching high and low, looking for the hidden piece of bread that has been buried. The child that finds the piece brings it back to the father and receives a, receives a reward for diligently seeking in order to find. The father stands and he completes the ceremony of the matzatash and the afikomen. He unwraps this special piece of broken bread from its cloth wrappings and he breaks off small pieces for everyone at the Passover. And everyone there receives a piece of the bread broken in the hands of the leader. Luke twenty-two nineteen says, And Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If the three-in-one matzotosh this bag that has the three separations, if it represented the patriarchs, then Isaac would be given a preeminent place in Judaism. But he isn't. If the matzotosh represented the unity of worship, then the Levites would be given a preeminent place in Judaism. But they are not. If any of their theories are correct, then why is this middle piece broken, buried, and brought back? back from its burial place. If the matzotosh represents the unity of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we know why the middle piece was broken. We know why the middle piece was buried. We know why the middle piece was brought back. Jesus endured the severest and most cruel form of torture, a and punishment that a human being could ever endure. But Jesus told his disciples in John 10, 17 through 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And on the third day, as the old song says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Jesus then took the third cup. This is the cup after the meal in the Passover Seder. This cup is called the cup of blessing and redemption. This cup is supposed to remind Israel that God has redeemed them physically from slavery in Egypt and looks forward to the time when the Messiah will come and redeem them spiritually. In Luke twenty two twenty, 20, it says, And likewise, the cup 
after they had eaten, after the Passover meal, said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what Jesus passed on to them was not new information. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 31 of his book, had prophesied that God would establish a new covenant with God's people. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. The problem with the old covenant was that it was repeatedly broken by God's people. They rejected him and they chased after idols that were made of wood and stone. And though God had been faithful to them, they had been unfaithful to him. Here God promised a new covenant. But there is no covenant without the shedding of blood. So Jesus connected Jeremiah's prophecy to what was about to happen when his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Sin was no longer going to be partially covered up through the blood of bulls and goats, but it will be completely covered by a once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Sitting in the upper room with the disciples, Jesus took this cup of redemption, showing them that their redemption was truly drawing near, nearer than ever before. I can't even imagine what the disciples were thinking in that moment. They had celebrated Passover every single year of their life. They had celebrated with Jesus the Passover at least one or two times before. But this Passover was different than any other Passover they had celebrated. Because this Passover, the third cup took on a whole new meaning for them. So that Paul, when Paul gave the instructions to the Corinthian church about taking communion, he warned them against un he warned them against taking it in an unworthy manner. Our redemption was costly, and it should never be approached haphazardly, recklessly, or disrespectfully of Christ's sacrifice. At each Passover, there's a tradition that you leave one seat vacant at the table for Elijah, who is the forerunner of the Messiah. And at this point of the order, the Passover Seder, the youngest child gets up from the table and opens the door to see if Elijah is there to tell them that the Messiah is coming. As the door is being opened, the family says, Baruch habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every single Passover, Jews across the world open their door, and they await for the pronouncement of the Messiah by the ministry, through the ministry of Elijah. But Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 17 that Elijah had already come in the ministry of John the baptizer. 
John was the forerunner that was prophesied to prepare the way of the Messiah. Let's go worship team to come on up. Even though we took communion last week, I think we would be, well, those of you who were here or were able to take it at home, I think we'd be missing a wonderful opportunity to take it in a new light. I take it again today. So I'll ask our ushers if you could prepare, and I would ask our ushers to please serve our worship team first and then serve the congregation. And as soon, ushers, as you have the elements, you can go ahead and, and begin serving our worship team and then the congregation. Passover concludes with the singing of Hallel, which is a portion from the book of Psalms that give praise and thanksgiving to God. And they sing and they praise God and they partake of this fourth cup, which is the cup of praise. Passover is not just a memorial to a past event that happened in Egypt. It was a prophetic tool that God used to prepare Israel for their Messiah. Sadly, they didn't even recognize the Messiah when he came. Many rejected his message and his ministry. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, it says, The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to the people of Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You are not saved by your racial ethnicity. You're not saved by who your mom or your dad is. You're not saved because some influential person chose you. You are saved because you have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are saved because you have the blood of Christ applied to the doorpost of your homes, of your hearts. Ushers, go ahead and serve. Serve the worship team first and then the congregation, please. So right now, as you are going to receive the elements, I want you to take a moment and I want you to search your heart. I want you to ask the Lord if there is anything in your life that needs to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to search your heart and ask God if there's any sin in your life, anything that you need to make right with God. As the ushers serve you, hold it and just ask the Lord. Take a moment. Ask the Lord for his forgiveness of sins. Maybe you can't think of anything that you've done, any sin you've committed. But it, I think it's always appropriate for us to say, Lord, if there is anything in my heart, if there is anything in my life, there's anything unclean, unpure in me, I would ask God that you would cleanse me from that unrighteousness. That you would reveal anything 
attitude or action. Something, God, that I should be doing that I haven't done. Something, God, that I shouldn't do and I have done. And that you ask the Lord to search your heart, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to make you clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. As the ushers continue to serve, I just ask, just take a moment this morning and pray. If, you, if we have some ushers that are available, can you take it up to the uh, media folks? We have a couple folks up there that would like to take it as well. Just I'm going to take just a moment. <clears throat> In our church, we typically take communion the first Sunday of every month. And... I've done it my entire life, um, being a preacher's kid um, and uh, growing up in church and then leading churches, taking communion pretty much the first Sunday of my entire life. And it's really easy for something that becomes your tradition to become a routine and to lose its significance. And I hope that today through this message presentation you've been able to see uh, a, more than you ever have before about the Last Supper. This moment where Jesus and his disciples are partaking of the Passover of the very last time. One of the things that really got me this weekend is because this, this past week was the Festival of Sukkot, which is the Festival of Tabernacles. And there's a specific uh, part of it, a uh, specific day. And uh, on that day, the people of Israel, all the Jews around the world, they cry out, Hoshana Rabbah, which means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And when I was reading this article about this thing that was going on last week, this, this past Thursday, Friday, whenever it was, it just broke my heart that this people so near the word of the Lord, so near the prophecies, all of the prophecies about the Messiah, and yet so blind that they still cry out, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And you have to know the heart of the Father when he's saying, I have. I have made a way for you. I've made a way for you to be saved. And yet you still reject. You have the word of the Lord. You have all of these symbols your eyes today have been opened they do this every single year their entire life and they still don't see 
as I believe Isaiah and other prophets have said, they have eyes and they won't see, they have ears and they won't hear. But if they would see and if they would hear, they would turn and I would save them and I would heal them from their sins. And yet they cry out, Lord, save us, Lord, save us. I just imagine the heartbreak of the father when he longs for them to be saved and yet they still reject the hidden matzah. They reject God the Son. They reject their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to pray over the bread and then you're going to take it today. Remember what it represents. The body of Jesus Christ that was broken for you. By his stripes, this sinless, this pure, unleavened piece of bread with no yeast, no no impurities that is pierced and that is striped represents the body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are the afikomen. You are the hidden matzah that was brought forth from the grave into resurrection life. And as we take this bread, we remember the punishment that your body bore for our healing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take the bread this morning together. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup, the cup of redemption, is a new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, you remember me. You remember the sacrifice. There's a sense that sometimes we can treat communion like a funeral. And it's not. But it is a reverent moment where we remember the sacrifice that was paid for our sins. And we never want to take it recklessly, disrespectfully, because we understand the price that he paid, which we deserved for our salvation. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. Jesus, you said you're the vine and we're the branches. It's your job to produce the fruit. It's our job to bear the fruit. Help us have your strength to bear the fruit of righteousness so that all will see our good works and glorify not us, but glorify the God of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take the juice together.